Hello everyone, this is Karin Takar and welcome to the Zenergy Podcast. Over the past decade, India has done an impressive job of integrating renewable energy into its energy mix. For this Fulbright podcast series, I sought to investigate the enabling factors and potential of India's global leadership in renewable energy with the focus on solar. This Fulbright series is broken down into four seasons. This season, we look at the next set of key technologies and regulations integral for unlocking India's continued renewable energy success at the system level. It includes conversations with leading regulators and thought leaders across energy management, storage, transmission, and distribution. In this conversation, we will be speaking with Dan Stein the chief economist with ID Insight and the founder of ID Insight's Giving Green Initiative. ID Insight is a mission-driven global advisory, data analytics, and research organization that helps global development leaders maximize their social impact. In our conversation, we discuss what types of data help maximize impact investments and the work Dan is engaged in with regards to maximizing climate impacts across several emerging markets. I hope you enjoy. So thank you, Mr. Stein, for participating in this interview. I really appreciate you taking the time. And I would just like to ask you to briefly introduce yourself so that listeners can get a bit of an understanding of what you do Sure. Thanks, Karin. So I'm Dan Stein. I'm currently the chief economist at ID Insight. And ID Insight is a, a nonprofit organization that uses data and evidence to help, um, to help funders, governments, and entrepreneurs make better decisions when trying to improve the lives of the world's poorest. Um, I've also started our Giving Green initiative, which is a uh, project that is looking to, to help donors find evidence-based, cost-effective ways to fight climate change. Uh, my background is as an economist. I have a PhD in economics, and before working at ID Insight, I worked at the World Bank. Great. And how did you connect to ID Insight? Just curious. Well, yeah, I was working at the World Bank, and I was, I'd been there for almost four years, and I was just starting to get a little antsy, looking for keeping my eyes out for the next, the next thing. And I had, it's actually through a colleague at the World Bank, a colleague, friend, and eventual roommate uh, had gone to grad school with these, uh, with the founders of ID Insight at the Kennedy School, as we were speaking about before, and kept telling me, you know, you need to talk to, you need to talk to these ID Insight guys. They're really something cool. And I was like, ah, I don't know. They're like some piddly organization, you know, that they had like, I think the first time I looked at them, they had like 10 people and a little website. I was like, I don't know who these guys are. I don't know who these guys are. Forget it. But, you know, eventually my friend convinced me to talk to Buddy Shaw, who was one of the founders of ID Insight. And we had this talk and she's a very inspirational leader. We're going to grow. We're going to be changing the world. I said, okay. But they said, oh, but, but we don't have money to pay you. So let's talk. Let's talk later. But then they, we kept talking every three, six months or something. And then ID Insight was growing and it really looked like they were ready for takeoff and they were ready to hire an economist. I was the first like sort of person with a formal background in economics and organization. 
And yeah, I decided to 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 make the plunge to a to a you know young, growing, like vibrant organization. I'm also just curious because as I was mentioning to you, like a few of my friends during my Fulbright mm. experience, they worked at ID Insight and a lot of them, like previously to getting to Delhi, were working in different countries. I know a few worked in countries across Africa. Have you also had that similar experience where you've been traveling a lot? What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, when you're in the, the line of work of, you know, international work, I think it just comes with travel. So starting, you know, when I started, I mean, to be honest, even before I worked in tech before I did this and I had a job that had a lot of travel, I love to travel. So I, I've sought out various career paths that include a lot of travel. And then when I did my PhD, I was doing, uh, I was studying rainfall insurance in Gujarat in India. So I was going back and forth to in, spend, spending a lot of time in Gujarat. And then, yeah, when I was at the World Bank, I was on the road constantly, maybe 40, 50% of the time at the beginning, at least you know, Bangladesh, Nepal, Rwanda, Mongolia, Kenya, I had I had projects all over the place. And then at ID Insight, the same thing, you know, ID Insight, I'm, I'm ostensibly based in the US, but I spend a lot of my time on the road. We don't have an office here in the US um, anymore. And all of our work is in Africa and Asia. So I've spent a lot of time at our very offices. In fact, for 18 months, Right before the pandemic, I gave up my apartment and just decided to float to ID Insights various offices and also work remotely for some places. So, so yeah, I, I spend a lot of time in all over the place. I'm so jealous, honestly. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's got its it's got its ups and downs, but um, I think if you if you uh, if you embrace it and if you can if you do it on your own terms, it can be really great actually leads well into my next question, which, um, of course, I know that ID Insight focuses a lot of work in the developing context. I recently read a statistic for developing countries to reach their climate commitments. I think it creates a $22 trillion market opportunity. How intertwined do you believe like the climate and the economy will be, if that's not too broad of a question? Yeah, it's pretty broad, but I think I can tackle it. I, mean, I think there's two separate points here. The first is that I think when you think about the climate challenge from a world perspective, you have to take into account that uh, that poor countries consume far less energy than wealthy countries. And there's essentially no historical precedent of a country getting wealthy without using much more energy. So there's this assumption that as various parts of Asia and Africa grow over time, they're going to be using way more energy. Now, from a climate perspective, we think that we should be emitting less carbon, which either means creating less energy or making energy less carbon intensive. And I, I think where these things come to, come to clash is that you know, from a pure environmentalist point of view, you might say like, well, okay, we as a world just can't afford, you know, poor countries to use so much energy. But then from a justice perspective, you think like, well, how is that fair? All these rich countries grew on their growth path with cheap fossil energy. Now they're rich and now they're going to 
deny that to poor countries. So I think no one's saying that, but I think that's this this tension and problem, which is that like not only do we need to decrease the amount of carbon, we need to decrease the like we need to drastically decrease the amount of carbon we're doing while drastically increasing the amount of energy we're producing. And that becomes this very fundamental dual challenge. And I think that essentially the only way that you can solve this problem is through uh, through massive technology adoption, let's say leapfrogging technology. So we need, we need that poor countries to adopt kind of leading edge technologies um, in terms of energy generation, you know, like solar, like wind, like electric cars. But then, but that's not always the cheapest. And I think that's where you get these types of funding gaps where it's like, well, if we as the well wealthy countries have gotten rich off fossil fuels and now we want to wean the world off fossil fuels, it's like sort of the responsibility of wealthy countries to help poorer countries develop cleanly. I mean, at least that's the way I look at it. That makes a lot of sense. The key question is, can countries develop sustainably? Is the technology, in your view, to the point where sustainable development and economic development can come together? I mean, is the technology there? Like, well, only sort of. I mean, and then it's also more expensive. I mean, so right now, the, the obvious answer is solar, which is the one tech, the one renewable, well, maybe not the one renewable technology, one of few renewable technologies that really can compete with fossil fuels, complete with coal. But well, the problem that hasn't really been solved is the, the temporal problems with solar, i.e. the sun doesn't shine at night, and in certain areas, the sunlight isn't, isn't strong enough. So... I don't particularly think that there's a great technological solution that is quite ready for um, for poor countries to adopt off the shelf to like massively increase energy supply without fossil fuels. But I think that there's a little bit of technological innovation that still needs to happen. I mean, in theory, it's possible you can store the energy in batteries or you can pump water up the hill, but um, these things aren't really quite ready for for prime time. So, can it happen? Yes. Can it happen right now? Uh, I think the answer is no. But which makes tension in a, in a country like India that wants to go like right now. So, I think the solution has to be that that um, that the technology just runs a little bit behind. The electrification and that you take steps to avoid known as carbon lockdown that like to put avoid putting in place systems that can't be easily decarbonized later like say running natural gas lines like we have in the u.s i think you might say like well maybe that's not the best solution to be putting into new places because once that infrastructure is in place it's very hard to to back down from that so maybe you have a system in place and even if you have to put a fossil plant to be powering the electricity system now, make sure that it's built in such a way that if we wanted to replace it with a solar plant or a geothermal plant, there wouldn't be huge costs to do that. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a quick example. In India, I'm working on a lot of these mini grid projects. Sounds great. It sounds clean, but most of the mini grids that we work with actually have diesel backup because sometimes you need energy when the sun isn't shining. And so it's just not, 
it's just not really feasible to do it 100% green right now. Could you talk a little bit more about the Giving Green initiative, how this venture came about? Yeah, definitely. So Giving Green is a, let's say a semi-autonomous initiative within ID Insight. And it's, it's a little bit different than ID Insight's main, uh, main let's say, main function. You know, ID Insight is, is big in working in developing countries and conducting research and helping decision makers with the M&E. Whereas Giving Green is a little bit more meta in terms of it's basically trying to answer if you're a, if you're an individual or you're a a philanthropic donor and you're trying to make a difference in climate change, you know what are where where are the places where there's really evidence and you can make the most cost effective uh, intervention right now, and where that came from was so I've been working in international development for over ten years and working on this. I would say evidence policy nexus, where you had researchers that were trying to figure out what worked, running randomized trials, running impact evaluations, gathering data, trying to say like, okay, if we have a solution, what works? What's the evidence? What's cost effective? And then let's try to get um, policymakers and donors to put money into what works. And there's this whole ecosystem there of research organizations of which I would consider us one of them. And, you know, you have people like JPAL and IPA that are some of the big names. And then you also have people who have taken that information and, um, and, and pack it, repackaged a bit for donors. So I'm thinking of places like GiveWell. Okay, like we've looked at all the evidence and we think that charities A, B, and C are the best bets for your money in public health. Now, as I started to work a bit more on climate change, I was surprised that that ecosystem didn't really exist. And I mean, there's actually been massive changes since in even the last few years, but there's not that many good evaluations on environmental projects. Um, the evidence is super thin, like what works to stop pe people from chopping down forests. I worked on forestry for a while at the World Bank. There's hardly any evidence. Uh, and then when you get to even more, like more practical, if you're a donor, you want to put in $100, $1,000, a $1 million dollars towards something that's really cost-effective and evidence-backed, kind of impossible to find. I thought that this was a problem I could just solve by going and Googling a little bit, and it's really hard. And not only is the evidence not there, there's bad information out there, uh, specifically around, I think there's a lot of misinformation in the carbon offset market, which is kind of designed to solve this. Like, okay, I want to pay money and remove carbon. What's the cheapest way to do it? The, off the offset market like purports to be that, but it's filled with misinformation, especially for someone who doesn't know the ins and outs of it. So we just felt like there was a need for, for a simple guide, well-researched, that could present the evidence to the public and say, look, this is, this is what we think the best bets are in fighting climate change. And that's, and so we decided to do it at Giving Green. That's great. And what are some of the best bets? I think that the, the, the best thing that people can do is to think about how to use small donations to really achieve systemic change. So I would, I would tell people to stay away from these things. It's not, not fair to say stay away, but I don't think the best bet is to say, you know, buy, support this solar farm in Africa or uh, do this to try and support 
these, you know, this forest from getting cut down. Like all of these initiatives are worthwhile, but I really think you can't attack the climate problem piecemeal. It's a systemic problem that needs systemic solutions. So I really believe that the best, it's, it's systemic solutions are going to need government. So I think that the best solutions are trying to put your donations towards organizations that are going to influence the levers of power in government in terms of uh, creating new regulations, setting new norms, um, you know, pushing for new renewable energy standards, et cetera. So we concentrated our our research on the on the US because I mean first of all I think the US the US is this world's second emitter, but also its policies and technologies can tend to have wide spillover throughout the world. And so we focused on a couple organizations that we think were doing really good work but were underfunded. One is the uh, okay just taking a step back, we 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 thought through our research, we thought that in order to really affect uh, political change, there's two basic strategies. You can have the insider strategy, which is you work with the politicians, you're in the boardrooms, you're helping write laws, you're maybe having drinks with the politicians. You know, We call that inside baseball. That's how a lot of laws get made. And then you also have outside, which is grassroots activism, putting pressure on lawmakers, calling congressmen, protests, uh, you know, trying to, trying to affect the systems of power. That's the outside game. So within the inside game, I think it's unclear in climate which of those is going to be more effective. You certainly need both. So we tried to look at solutions in both. And uh, for last year, for 2020, we're still working on our 2021 recommendations. For last year, for 2020, one is the Clean Air Task Force, which is pushing for the U.S. government to support and fund research and development of neglected energy technologies, and also the Sunrise Movement Education Fund, which is a wing of the Sunrise Movement that's trying to grow the movement, and the Sunrise Movement is trying to put pressure on politicians to take climate more seriously and act on climate. I just have one more question, like mm -hmm. in terms of the technology side, I've always been curious in terms of when a technology does get developed in the U.S. market, and I know you work, of course, across like a lot of developing countries. Um, so how does that process work where, like, say there's a technology here in the U.S. that is not only applicable to the U.S. economy, but also in these countries, but maybe those countries have a smaller market than the U.S. does. So, like, it's not a priority focus area for that company right now? I think that you get innovators within markets for developing countries that figure out how to make it work. I think one thing, you, one thing you, I, there's a couple examples that pop to mind. One are solar panels, which were developed in, developed in the U.S. Eventually, you know, China makes most of the solar panels. And, and in, in the U.S., what you get, the biggest use of solar panels are, you know, putting big arrays on roofs to hire to to power houses, but you know, in and and these are like as a complement to the grid normally, and so that that type of thing hasn't really taken off in Africa for a variety of reasons. But what has taken off is you know little tiny solar panels that 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 um, that power 
a small solar home system that allows people to charge cell phones and has a light and maybe a little battery and a little radio. So I think it's just about, I think that technology will spill over into other countries and you need local innovators to figure out how to make it work there. I think the other thing I'm thinking about is the electric car market in China. Like, okay, in the US, you've got $50,000 Teslas and these electric cars are luxury cars. But I think you have entrepreneurs in China and these Chinese car companies that are trying to make the batteries smaller and cheaper and fit in smaller cars and um, empowering a real electric car revolution there that if I were to guess, was probably going to eventually spill back into the US um, and push push the original uh, companies to innovate even more. So... So I think I think the technologies you don't need you don't necessarily need the company to want to work in developing countries. Like if someone a company in the US works invents something, the technology will spill over, it'll get copied or it'll get licensed or whatever. Uh, you can't keep a good idea in the box for too long. Thank you, Mr. Stein, so much for taking the time. I hope you enjoyed that episode and do check out the show notes for more information on my guest. See you next time.